News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what we see happening in the United States. We saw protests already erupting across the U.S. over that leaked draft of a ruling for the potential to strike down Roe versus Wade and impact a woman's right to choose in that country. It's really prompted a lot of politicians in Canada as well to talk about what the situation is like for women here. Well, Carly Weeks, a Global Mail health reporter, recently wrote a piece on this, and she joins us now to talk more about it. Carly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Did you ever think that a few weeks after that you would be talking about this in Canada, it would suddenly become so incredibly relevant? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to say I was totally shocked, but I think, you know, we've, we've kind of seen the writing on the wall, and I think that, you know, for a lot of groups that are out there who have been uh, rallying against abortion and against more ch- choices for women, um, you know, they've been planning this for a long time, and so I think you, you sort of saw the pieces slowly fall into place in the U.S., and, and there are those fears that, um, you know, a spillover could happen in Canada. Like, let's not forget, the majority of Americans uh, do support abortion um, in, in some and circumstances. And the same is true in Canada. Uh, so anyway, anything can happen. And that's why I think a lot of advocates are feeling concerned this week. And yesterday you saw that, you know, the federal conservatives were told by their leader, like, nobody comment on this. But do you think it's putting politicians a bit on, a, on the hot seat here in Canada, too? Uh, definitely it is. Um, and I think that, you know, there's always these accusations flying back and forth. You know, um, we hear that, you know, the Liberals and the NDP are, you know, very supportive of abortion, saying that it's the Conservatives that want to create, uh, you know, an issue and, and cause harm to women. And the Conservatives continuously say, this is not, um, this is not our, in our plans. We're not going to do anything about it. But I think the real issue for a lot of um, Canadians who are watching this unfold, I think a few people are, or not not as many people are aware as they should be of just how restrictive some abortion policies can be in Canada. So do I think there are some concerns on a federal level? Sure, because anything can happen, as we saw in the U.S. This is quite unprecedented. Uh, but there's already a lot of problems in Canada. Yeah, let's talk about that. What is access like for women here? Um, it's not great. If you're in a big city, uh, and if you live in Quebec where services are more spread out, then you're in luck. But if you are one of the Canadians who are outside of a big city who need to access a timely abortion, it can be very tricky. Um, it's not as though you can sort of just access this like you would any other healthcare service. And this is one of the problems that um, abortion advocacy groups have long been calling attention to, that there needs to be more access and more equity. So essentially, if you live in a, a small rural uh, community um, far away from an urban center and you need to have an abortion, you want to access uh, an abortion, you need to often travel uh, long distances, pay out of pocket. This is really impossible for a lot of people who maybe don't have access to childcare or transportation. They can't take time off work. Maybe they have other children at home. So you can just see how these things really, really add up. Um, and these policies hurt the most vulnerable uh, groups in Canada. Do you think this is a bit of a wake-up call then? You know, it should be. It should be. Whether it will be is is a good question. I mean, this this... What we're seeing in the United States right now is something that people said was impossible, you know, maybe a decade ago, even five years ago. And and we slowly saw how um, that, that changed. And now we're in the situation we're in. So, you know, abortion in Canada is not 
regulated. You know, it's not, it's, it's a health, um, it, it's a health procedure. It's treated as a medical procedure between doctor and patient. Uh, there are some people who feel as though it should be regulated. There should be laws created around uh, gestation, around weeks, and all of these other restrictions. You know, this is, this is something that is between a doctor and a patient. Um, and there are concerns that um, well-funded groups who have been lobbying very hard and who have, um, you know, been working to get enough politicians on their side will erode those rights. Um, right now, you know, abortion policies are largely delivered and decided by provinces. Provinces deliver health care in Canada. So I think that we don't necessarily spend enough attention even looking at some of those provincial policies. For instance, in places like New Brunswick, it's very, very difficult to access an abortion, um, even if you live in the capital city of that province. Um, and if you look across the country, it's a very similar story everywhere you look. It's just, I feel like, Carly, this is a bit of a wake-up call for us here because I think many people always assumed, well, it's not a problem. Like, we don't have any laws restricting it. It's not a problem here, but it's a problem right. when you need it, and then you try to go looking for it, and you can't get it. Exactly. I think that people are under the, the false assumption that everything is great here, everything's working, because maybe they haven't heard otherwise. Maybe they've never been in that position, or they don't know someone, or they, they're not aware that they know someone who's had to go through all of these hoops. I've done extensive reporting on this issue, and um, you know, geography is one of the problems, right? I mean, we know we have a vast geography. It's hard. It's, it's hard to get access to healthcare um, systems, True. no matter where you live, yeah. if you, in, in certain parts. But abortion is often a, its own very separate problem. So let's take, for instance, the abortion pill. This came on the market in Canada five years ago. Um, we were the last developed country to actually put it on the market, which is not great. Um, so this is a prescription that can be written by a healthcare provider. So in, in some provinces, nurse practitioners. And, and physicians. It is almost impossible in some provinces to get a prescription outside of an abortion clinic. So even though it's a prescription, you can take this pill at home with your doctor monitoring you, you still have to often travel hundreds of kilometers to a clinic to get a prescription that can be given anywhere in the country. This is what's frustrating. And, and for a lot of abortion advocates who are saying we need access and equity, um, this is not fair. And it really puts already disadvantaged women on uh, you know, e even greater disadvantage. Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to be talking a lot about that in the weeks ahead. Carly, thank you. Thanks for having me. That is Carly Weeks, Globe and Mail health reporter. Check out her work in the Globe and Mail. She's been writing about this for some time now, about just a, a, a woman's access to the health care that she needs. We may think that there are things that are not you know, against the law here in Canada, but still accessing those services can still be very challenging, as Carly has been writing about there. So more to come on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's get an update on what is happening in the United States today. That bombshell report this week, the leaked draft opinion from the U.S. Supreme Court that could potentially overturn Roe versus Wade. So what has been going on in the last 24 hours? Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. It has been uh, quite a day, I would say. What is going on now? Is this investigation going to be happening? Yes, there will be an investigation uh, inside the U.S. Supreme Court carried out by the Supreme Court Marshal's Office, uh, and that was activated by the Supreme Court um, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, who, who is concerned uh, about what is happening inside the court with information being leaked out. This is unprecedented. It's unparalleled. This kind of leak has never taken place inside the Supreme Court, so there are concerns and questions as to why this was released and what the purpose of it was. Uh, you know, there are calls uh, for the 
potential of the Department of Justice to step in. It's unclear what, you know, violation they could ultimately be investigating here. But there is concern because this, you know, this draft, this leak, it's not a decision. That decision is still to come, but it has very clearly shown the divide that exists in this country. Not only that, I noticed that there were quite a few senators who were talking about their concerns regarding some of the testimony a couple of Supreme Court justices gave at their confirmation hearings. Well, I mean, at this point, you have to you have to question whether or not Republican senators or, or any senators are actually shocked that 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 a Republican nominee, uh, you know, turned their back on the testimony that they gave. But ultimately, you know, the concern is coming from people like Susan Collins and from Lisa Murkowski. These are moderate Republicans who put direct questioning to uh, then nominees uh, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, who said that Roe is. Is the the kind of law of the land and it's a precedent and it can't be overturned and here they are now uh you know kind of following with the republican line that roe needs to be overturned so there is shock it just has to be questions you know how genuine that shock actually is right so we know that this draft ruling was genuine is that something that was confirmed by the chief justice the, the court did confirm the authenticity of this. It had been drafted back in February, but the pushback from Chief Justice Roberts is that these decisions can change. The opinions of the justices inside this draft could ultimately change. Is that possible? It is. But again, you're looking at uh, Republican uh, uh, appointed uh, justices under the Trump administration, at least three of them, who appear to be firmly in line with this uh, with this attempt here to overturn Roe. And it is hard to, uh, you know, it's hard to get Democrats. Democrats and and, uh, pro-choice advocates to kind of flip their mind to think that this is going to go any other way. So there are serious concerns here, not only for what this will do if abortion rights in this country are wiped away, but what that could do to other rights that are protected under the Constitution. Now, Reggie, I know there had been a lot of discussion about what was going to happen in the midterms this fall. Does this change the landscape? It, it absolutely could. I mean, Democrats are seizing on this uh, potentially to get the Democratic base out. This is typically in a midterm year. Uh, it goes against the sitting party in the White House and Republicans were expected to pick up, if not gain control of the House and potentially the Senate here. But Democrats are really going after their voter base now to say, look, there is a risk here that the rights of hundreds of millions of people in this country are going to be ripped away, whether it's from abortion or whether it's from an attempt to take away other freedoms uh, you know, or, or rights you know, linked to something like access to contraception or same-sex marriage. And Democrats are really going to try to push their Democrats to not only back pro-choice candidates, but to come out in droves. Problem is, last night there was an Ohio, there was a primary in Ohio, and there were far more Republican voters that came out in that race uh, than in Democratic uh, areas. So this is going to be a push for Democrats. The Biden administration is going to be out uh, in full force over the next several months trying to make this a key issue. What do polls tell us, though, about the level of support for Roe versus Wade? Well, that's where the court is on the wrong side of, of American positions. Uh, you know, the, the aggregate number of the polling that, that you can find that's been put out there puts somewhere between 50 and 60% of Americans are in favor of having access to abortion in every single state. And here you have the courts ultimately trying to potentially pull that right away from the majority of people that want access to it to kick it down to the legislative level at the state level. And then, you know, if that happens, if Roe is ultimately struck, there are trigger laws in 13 states that would automatically ban abortion and go against what the popular opinion is in that state. So there are potential ramifications here politically. There are potential ramifications here potentially legally uh, as well to see what could happen. But the court, according to this draft, is not on the same side as the American people. Okay, so what is the next step here? I know legislators seem to be gearing up to take some action. What's going to happen? 
they can try. The problem is the Democrats don't have the numbers on their side. In order to get this codified into law, Democrats would need 60 votes in the Senate to make this uh, a legislative act to to keep abortion legal from coast to coast. They only have 50 votes plus one in a tie if the vice president votes. They don't have 60, and the Democrats aren't willing to get rid of an archaic rule of the filibuster that would allow them to just pass it with a simple majority. Uh, so the Biden administration is urging either a potential end of the filibuster or to try and get this codified somehow because there's a fear, Simi, that if Republicans gain control of the Senate, either in 22 or 24, and ultimately get the votes, could Republicans either nullify the filibuster or get the votes to ban abortion from coast to coast and make the law a ban on abortions? So there is concern here that if Democrats don't act now, things could potentially get more difficult. Hmm, Interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you for that update. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, talking about the way in which this bombshell leak this week has just completely upended American politics right now. We'll have to find out what happens next. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, something happened in the month of April when it came to real estate in Metro Vancouver that we haven't seen in a while. It was typical sale levels. That is not something that's happened in quite a long time here in Metro Vancouver. So what is it? What actually went on? What was selling? What wasn't? Joining us now is Craig Munn, the Director of Communications at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Craig, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So when we say historically typical levels for the month of April, what does that mean? Yeah, it's funny that that becomes newsworthy, but uh, you know we haven't seen typical in our market probably for the last 18 months or so. Uh, so home sales across Metro Vancouver in April were uh, came in around 3,200 sales, which is just around our 10-year average for that uh, month. You know, compare that against the record-breaking period of a year ago when we, you know, we're setting all-time highs, you know, around 57, 5,500 uh, sales a month. So, uh, you know, down to what's more typical, um, but still a steady month, you know, from a historical perspective. So when we look at it in terms of a 10-year sales average, was there an improvement? Was it up? Was it down? Yeah, it's it's right at that average. We were up 1.5%, a negligible amount compared to the 10-year average. So really kind of, uh, you know, just at that steady, like we're saying, historical, typical pace uh, in the month, month of April. Craig, what do you think that tells us about what's happening in the market? Uh, I think it tells us a couple things. One is that that it, you know, you can't always be in an up cycle. So some of this might just be cyclical. Uh, most most market cycles run about 18, 20, 20 months or something like that. And that's what we've seen. So it, it's coming down a little bit. Uh, it's probably also telling us the impact of uh, interest rates coming up from historical lows. You know, uh, Bank of Canada uh, increasing those steadily in 2022. So we're seeing some of the effects of that. And, uh you know, for folks in the market, it obviously allows for a little bit of a breather after a period of, uh, you know, frenetic kind of pace. Right. But we're talking about sales here. We're not talking about prices. What do we know about prices? Yeah, prices are still sticking, you know, firm at, at this point. Um, you know, year over year, you know, well-documented price increases across the region, around 20% um, d- uh, across Metro Vancouver. Last, you know, month over month, you don't want to put too much stock in month over month, but it was up 1%. So uh, still, you know, uh, still increasing. And it's going to take some some time if if people are hoping for, 
price declines and those kinds of things, you know, we'll, we'll have, to, have to wait and see. But, you know, sellers certainly are in the psychology of maximizing the price for their for their homes. They've been accustomed to that over the pandemic. So yes. just overnight with, with some softening demand, you're, you're not, it, it's probably not realistic to think that sellers are going to look to sell their, their prices at significantly lower amounts. Well, that's the thing though. It's a lot to ask a seller to suddenly say you have to get less for your property when they've been looking at their neighbors making bank over the last two years. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the big factor in all this is supply. We, we still continue to be really constrained on the supply side. So the supply and di- de- uh, demand dynamics, even though there's, there's a little bit less demand, there's still, re- you know, supply is, is, is at a really low point. So in, until there's a, some, uh, significant increases there, it's going to be tight in terms of, uh, of pricing. What about listings? What about the number of listings? Yeah, so, so there's always the, uh, just a, a real direct relationship between the two. So when you have a few fewer sales, that allows the, the amount of listings to accumulate more and they're not all getting eaten up by, by huge uh, sale, sale numbers. So we have seen each month this year, uh, the total number of listings increase. We're up around uh, 8,000 or a little north of 8,000, I believe right now. But, you know, what we're saying from our analysis, if we really want to hit like kind of balanced market territory, we're still a ways off of that where we could use, you know, double the amount of listings, um, you know, even triple the amount would, would, would put us in kind of balanced territory and really ease the market. So supply continues to be uh, a focus and, and an issue in the market. Is there concern in the market that you can sense, Craig, about the fact that the Bank of Canada has been very clear that interest rates will go even higher? Well, it's a balance, right? We're all living in the community. And when we go to the grocery store and we go to the pumps, you see, you know, inflation is, is a real thing. So I think that's obviously what the Bank of Canada is trying to target. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, rising interest rates it, uh, impacts home buyers and, you know, what you can borrow on your, on your mortgage. Um, the, the big message to people today is, is really you, you want to do your homework and understand what that means for your financial situation. Um, what does that mean for what you can afford and, and really to adapt? Because, you know, um, when, when there's a 1% increase in interest rates uh, for, for your mortgage, that's not a 1% increase. That could be a you know a thirty percent or a twenty five percent increase in the amount of interest you're going to pay over the life of your mortgage. So you really need to understand what it means for you. Okay, so you said there's still a lot of interest in there though from people who want to move, who are looking to buy. Yeah, I mean it's really in terms of degrees. If we say that you know the last year has been record breaking and there's multiple offers and it was really hot. Uh, there was a lot of people who who made offers that we heard about who weren't successful, and those people haven't just gone to the sidelines. You know, we're hearing they're still out there, they're active, but it, but I think for sellers, they need to be a little bit sharper on their price. The the market has changed a little bit, and if you want to attract the demand at the levels that we're seeing today, you really need to price your property for today's um, environment, not for yesterday's environment. Don't try to chase you know previous prices. Right. All right. Well, listen, Craig, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's Craig Munn, who's the Director of Communications at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. 
I love kind of reading between the lines of real estate interviews too. So when you say that sellers need to sharpen their prices, that tells me that yes, there is a slowdown out there because there is a disconnect between what people are now able, it's not just willing to spend, but what they are able to spend because of the increase in interest rates and what have you versus what sellers want to get for their homes. Because if you're selling, you want what your neighbor got. You want what the person down the street got because you saw them get it. And you're thinking, well, their house isn't even as nice as mine. And look at how much more money they got. But circumstances have changed. That tells me that there is a real slowdown, I think, out there in the market. Let me know what you are seeing out there. Simi at cknw.com. Would love to hear from you on that. This is Mornings with Simi. It's no surprise that a lot of businesses out there are having trouble hiring staff. It's hard to entice people. Maybe they change jobs, they started different careers. But post-pandemic here, it does feel like getting people into it, particularly service jobs, has been quite challenging with this labor shortage that we have going on out there. And yet, for some businesses doesn't seem to be much of a problem at all. Maybe they've learned the secret to getting those employees to come and work for them. I think our next business might have gotten onto something really good there. Joining us right now is Thomas Elazigui, who's a partner and general manager of Aceta Cafe Bistro. Uh, this is in West Vancouver. Thomas, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. First off, tell me about Aceta Cafe Bistro. What kind of place is it? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a neighborhood uh, cafe that's actually... Under, like in Caulfield area, very residential. So it's quite far from downtown, but, but it's one bus drive away. So I thought I would for sure have trouble getting staff in here. And, um, and so far it's been actually um, pretty good. Okay. Pretty good. Well, we're going to get into yeah. that in a minute. But first off, like, have you had trouble in the past getting staff there? Um, well, I've just opened, it's been open for only two days. What? So, yeah, we've only been open for two days. So, wait a minute. So, you're like a brand new business owner and you had no trouble attracting staff? No, but I've, I used to have a couple other businesses. So, I guess people just know in regards to, you know, how I treat um, my team here. And, and um, you know, and I got people contacted me um, before opening. Okay. So, let's get into yeah. your secrets here, Thomas. So, what, <laughs> is it, what is it that you give to, how do you entice employees to come work there? Uh, you know, I don't, I, yeah, I would love to have people that are experienced, but more so when I interview people, it's more over their personalities and see if they jive with the, with the team. Um, that's important to me. The energy that they give off is important. So that's, that's a start for me. And then, um, after that, we can train people. Um, you always, you can train people for, for the work, but you can't train people for the personality. So that's, that's my philosophy. Um, Okay, so that's, that's but you also to. offer them some some things to make it attractive too, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, this is the first time I actually had opportunity to really run 100% of the business because usually you have a business partner that's, that's you know either involved, and now I'm 100% um, running the um, the business, and then my partner's silent. And I first thing I told him I said I, I want um, I want to have a um, my full time staff. You see, if I have a profit sharing program after a year. They're here, um, and then also I collect, I collect a bunch of points on my Visa card. I have one Visa card that I buy everything on, and then we can distribute those points for end of the year, and we can take a nice trip. As long as they don't take it at the same time, um, we can uh, provide, a, <laughs> provide a trip for them um, at the end of the year. So. so so, they get a free bus pass, right? You're providing a bus pass yeah, for them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they need one, I, I provide one for them. 
Okay. And then at the end of the year, they're going to get enough airline points to maybe take a trip somewhere. Yes. Yeah. And that's on top of like the salary and whatever. I'm assuming there's tips involved here too. Yes. There's tips involved and everything else. And, you know, and, you know, our tips are pretty good. Wherever I have a business, the tips are pretty good. Cause my, I come back, I come from a retail background. So um, customer service for me is number one. Um, and that's what I, that's why we look for. Okay. So you didn't have yeah. any trouble then getting people to come and work at a set of cafe. No, no. <laughs> I'm, still go- I'm still, I'm still, I'm still, I'm, I'm still looking for people because I'm, I want to expand in, in opening up the dinner um, portion of it. But, uh, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still interviewing a few people and, uh, I'm having no trouble right now. And so what is, what do you think is the secret here then, Thomas? Is it, do people need incentives these days to come and work or, or do they just want to be treated like they're appreciated? Uh, I think it's the, first, the second one you just said, um, they want to be appreciated. Like I, for me, having a, an incredible team is, is important. Um, I get, you know, and I, if I have to go clean the bathroom, I'll clean the bathrooms. Like it doesn't, it, for me, it doesn't matter. And I'm the first and the last one to go here. Um, and, uh, you know, I try to alleviate some of the heavy, heavy duty stuff that has to be done in the cafe. So you appreciate um, your employees. I do for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so is, does it spread through word of mouth? Like, do you say to your employees, Hey, find me some other people who want to work here. It does. Um, a few of the, a few of the um, people I've, I've hired actually is from word of mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that goes a long way. That's where I learned my, from that, from my past employers. Um, I had some great employers, um, and uh, they're my mentors. So I, I learned from them. And when I was younger, too, I tried to, look for, I, I would try to get a job at a restaurant. No one would hire me because I didn't have any experience. And I'm like, um, but I'm, you know, I'm good with people. That's, I think that's crucial for, for, uh, for any business. What are you hearing from the people who do apply for jobs there? So, like, what is it like for them in the job market right now? Um, there's a lot offered, but I think it just depends where they want to work. Um, obviously, in the end, it comes down to numbers, but I try to offer everybody as much as I can. Um, and, they, and they know. They know they know that. As long as they know um, I'm doing my best, it's, I think that's the most important part. And if I can't achieve that, then, then um, you know, they may go somewhere else, but at the same time, they, they, they haven't, they haven't left. So. Okay. So do you yeah. have any advice then for any other small business owners who are trying to attract employees? Uh, you know, what? they're like, treat them like family. Um, like they're like, they're, they're the goal. They're the ones that are running your business. Um, I want to be able to leave for the day and know that I don't have to show up the next day. Uh, and my business is running um, smoothly. Um, so they're, they're the ones they're the key to, to, um, a successful business. Well, you know what? You sound like you're on the right track. You've been open for two days and you're, you sounds like you're going places. So Thomas, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That is Thomas Elazigui, who's a partner and general manager of Ascetic Cafe Bistro. So they're in West Van. He said residential area. It's not like a lot of businesses and things around him. So you can imagine a lot of places might have trouble attracting staff, a little bit off the beaten path there. Uh, but no, he had no problem finding 12 to 15 staff to open a couple of days ago. So when Monday, I should say, was their very first day open. And you know what? Love it. What does he offer? Free bus passes. He provides bus passes to his staff. Uh, he charges all company expenses, everything onto a single credit card, which has travel points on it. And then at the end of the year, he will split the travel points among staff members so that they can take a trip. I mean, little things like that, when it's such a competitive job market out there, I can see how 
that would make the difference for people looking for a job. Found a way. Does your employer offer you any great incentives that make you think, you know what, I'm so glad I work where I work? I'd love to hear about it. Simi at cknw.com. You can call our buzz line too, 604-331-289. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk a little bit more about real estate. We've seen that housing prices have reached an all-time uncomfortable high. That happened during the pandemic. And now they seem to be slowing down a little bit. Maybe they're going to cool. But where does that leave people who still want to get into the market, particularly that millennial generation? Well, joining us now for more on that is our contributor, Raji Sohal. Morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, we know how hard it is to enter the lower mainland real estate market for the first time. Um, and it's exceedingly difficult now that we see interest rates uh, going up. But a recent Royal LePage, uh, Royal Lepage survey found that many millennials did actually buy during the pandemic. And I look around myself and my community at millennials that I know, and many of them, yeah, they bought their first place during the pandemic, despite those high prices. Okay, they weren't necessarily detached homes, but uh, condos, townhouses. And according to Scott Satov, he's the CEO and founder of Loans Canada. This is a company that advises clients on managing their money and debt. Uh, He says that more millennials bought during the pandemic because the pandemic restrictions actually made them value home ownership more. People were working from home and, you know, they needed more space. They were saving money because, you know, they couldn't go out. So they were saving money. They were working from home. They were cramped in their own spaces. They saw this boom of home prices and just thought that's a really good investment. It was a big push to stay home and people just wanted to have their own place and uh, grow into their home ownership. You know, record low interest rates was a big part of it, which drove the pricing quite high. With interest rates so low, people were saving their money. Um, there was a lot of different mortgage opportunities for them. All these millennials decided that they'd like to get a piece of the Canadian pie and they just went ahead and bought houses and looked for more space and branched out. A big stay-at-home movement pushed that tremendously. Yeah, Simi, I would also say that a lot of people, as they were working from home, they were paying more attention to the news and also the, the conditions of the pandemic and thinking, uh, hey, I haven't given this enough thought as I should have before. And maybe this is the time for us to take this seriously and then took that plunge and would buy. And Satov said that also the current inflation conditions um, shouldn't scare millennials. He said, if you didn't get in on that home buying already, he said, it's not too late. It, you'd think that even though we're going through a small, re- not a recession, but a small setback in housing prices, that it should continue to trend, maybe not in the same uh, trajectory as it has in the past. Like, you know, over the past, during the coronavirus, everything just was up 20, 30%, which isn't crazy. But I, I believe that it's, it's, it's stabilizing, you know, quite a bit. And if someone really wa- likes where they live and they plan on being there for the long term. Home ownership is probably the best vehicle. There's new programs available as well by the government that can also help quite a bit and if you're if you're looking to purchase a home. I find that so interesting, Roger. There still is a lot of um, expectation or a lot, I don't know if it's pressure on people to buy a home, but I think people are doing a real examination of their finances, especially with interest rates going up and saying, you know what, I'm going to have to wait because I just can't afford to do it right now. 
Yeah, so Satov looks at helping people with debt across the board, and he said people have also taken advantage of a lot of these new credit options. You know, these like, hey, you buy a, a mattress and you don't have to pay now, pay later, pay in these installments and that kind of thing. And people are biting off more than they can chew. And whenever you hear that word recession, I mean, he said maybe just call it a setback and not a recession. We don't know if we're headed for recession. We can't say for sure. But um, in people biting off more than they can chew, if you hear that word recession, maybe it's time to to start saving and saving really seriously. Um, it seems it seems to hold that in BC, at least uh, owning property is a solid investment. Hmm. Okay. It's still so tricky for people to get into it. I feel also like right now the market is in a bit of a holding pattern, you know, where people aren't quite sure which way this is going to go. Yeah, people don't know which way it's going to go. And one thing that we, you know, we see these interest rates change and maybe prices will be in flux a little bit. But one thing I don't see changing anytime soon is supply. I mean, we hear about new condo units, for example, going up. Um, I mean, it takes a lot in Metro Vancouver to make more of an impact than just a drop in the bucket. And so, especially if people are looking for detached homes, for example, uh, the supply of that is not going to increase suddenly significantly enough to change the market. I don't see that changing. I I agree because I think there's a people of my generation reaching that certain age where they're starting to think about downsizing. But the problem is there's nothing to downsize too. Whereas before you would do that process and then that would free up your home for some like a younger family to buy. Uh, there, It's a sideways move now if you're lucky because everything is so expensive. So there's nowhere to go if you want to downsize. Yeah. And I've talked to people in that situation where they, you know, it's a couple, they're elderly, they want to now get out of their home. The home is too much for them. They don't want to walk the stairs and they want to move into a condo uh, that's suitable for them. And in doing so, they're not going to save a ton of money between the two in that jump and that leap. Uh, Meanwhile, there are people who are just uh, chomping at the bit, waiting for them to vacate that home so they could purchase it. Uh, for for themselves, for like a younger family and whatnot. And I feel like that used to be the way it worked in the housing market. And I don't think it is that way at all. So everything is being upended in terms of getting on the property ladder, as you were saying with millennials, even that has been disrupted, don't you think? Yeah. And also I look at a lot of millennials who once thought that home ownership, owning a condo, for example, was within grasp. They just thought, hey, I just have to hang on a couple more years of saving savings. And then during the pandemic, uh, it just the housing market went boom and uh these condos became unaffordable. So that dream that they had, which felt really close, got suddenly too far away. Will those condos, for example, come down enough when we see a a slight incline in an increase in supply? Maybe, but again, I don't see that happening with housing in general, but maybe for, for condos, we'll see a little bit of a dip. We'll see. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. So, Raji Sohal there, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Important news for you to know about. BC is expanding the Alert Ready system to include more cases of things like floods and fires. How is this going to impact you? Mike Farnworth joins us now, BC's Minister for Public Safety. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. So, what's going to happen here? What should we be ready for? 
Well, uh, a number of things. First off, today at one uh, fifty-five uh, uh, this afternoon, there will be a test on the uh, broadcast intrusive. That's the alert ready system here in British Columbia. It's a nationwide test that will be going across right across the country. So uh, you will see uh, um, the uh, the test take place at, uh, and it'll go on off on cell phones, it'll go on TV, and on radio, uh, and it'll be a test of the uh, the broadcast alert system. So that's happening. Uh, at the same time, yesterday, we announced the expansion of the system province-wide uh, to be able to do alerts for the freshet season uh, and for the, uh, for the fire season, so for the, for the, for the upcoming uh, uh, you know, fire and flood season that we're concerned about, uh, as well being able to deal with uh, heat domes. There's some work still being done with health, and that will also be in place uh, by June as well. So all of those things will now see an expansion in the uh, in the alert ready system, uh, province wide across uh, across uh, across British Columbia. And why wasn't BC doing this already? Why weren't we already using it in that way? We we have been using uh, the system for tsunami uh, uh, tsunami warnings, uh, also for amber alerts, uh, and also um, with the RCMP in terms of active shooter. Uh, we've been working over the last number of years on the system province-wide. There are some significant governance issues in this provinces because the decision on when to use the alert-ready system uh, in most cases will start at that local level. So that means working with local governments, but also with First Nations who have the jurisdiction in their particular areas. At the same time, a number of communities uh, in this province already have their own alerting systems. The alert-ready system is not going to replace um, you know, um, um, how alerts take place. It is an additional tool to what we already have here in the province. So there was some criticism last year during the heat dome, as you mentioned there, and the flooding situation that we didn't use enough of an alert system like this. Are you confident that would change in the future now that there would be more warnings to people when we have these dangerous situations? This, what the alert ready system will do, it will allow for uh, alerts and warnings in, in, in cases of imminent threat. Um, one of the things in terms of these kinds of, of alerting systems that you have to be aware of and that we need to be careful of is that you don't get alert fatigue. You don't get the car alarm syndrome where that every time there's something happening, there's an alert going out and people do not pay attention. Um, we saw, for example, in the recent uh, alert that was done on the Amber Alerts on, up in Fort St. John, um, the 911 was flooded with calls, and that has the ability to impede. So it's done in specific circumstances. It's determined on the ground in real time by that local community, and, and more often than not will apply to a specific localized area. That being said, the province does have the ability, uh, if there's a particular situation where we can override and we can, we can put the alert out uh, on a province-wide basis if necessary. Do you feel, are we more willing, more likely to do that now, given what we saw happen in the past year? I, as I said, this is a uh, this is a, an, an additional tool to the tools that uh, we already have in terms of doing alerting. And so, uh, the, the other thing that's important to remember is is now that this is going province wide, and we're able to deal uh, to put these out, it will also be a very much a learning experience as well this year, uh, making sure that the, the system's working the way that it's intended. That we're able to, if there are any uh, issues or bugs, that we're able to identify them and get them refined and, and, and get them fixed. For example. Uh, but certainly this is going to be a, an important improvement to BC's uh, emergency uh, alerting system uh, in the province, starting with the freshet and the fire season, and obviously heat domes and other atmos- and atmospheric rivers and other events that occur. Okay, and so for people need to know is that today they're going to see this in action? 
Today there is a test at 155 uh, this afternoon, and it's happening right across the uh, right across the country. And uh, here in BC, it will be a testing of the system. Okay, and people don't complain about it. I think that's the message we want to get out there. Don't complain about Absolutely. it. Absolutely, <laughs> this is necessary. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister for Public Safety. That's an important message. Don't complain about it. This alert that you're going to be getting pushed out on your phones, the alert ready system this afternoon is necessary so that we can get people the information in an emergency situation. And yes, we don't want to have alert fatigue or anything like that, but they still have to test the system.